Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Jim Rutt. Jim Rutt is the former CEO of Network Solutions and former chairman of the Santa Fe Institute for Complex Systems Sciences, as well as one of the founding members of Game B. Game B is a civilization-level human operating system for maximizing human flourishing. More on that in a moment. We talk about the origins of Game B, how it differs in kind from the current state of affairs referred to as Game A, the financial drivers pushing unsustainable and inhuman ways of life, Jim's prospects for blockchain, DeFi, and attempts to build trustless networks, establishing decentralized Dunbar-level ecologically conscious kibbutz-style communities, hierarchy and competence-based leadership, liquid democracy, design versus iteration in the innovation space, what to do with predatory elements of human nature and nation-states, and how to begin transitioning from Game A to Game B by finding the others and building strong bonds in real life and online. This show has been years in the making for me, and that's why I'm so grateful Jim took the time to sit down and share some of his ideas on how we might move into a Game B paradigm. He doesn't pretend to know all the answers, and neither do I. But we do agree that it's long overdue that we started asking the right questions, not only about ourselves, but also about the ways we've been living. I hope this conversation will spur more interest in Game B and Game B-like projects. You can learn more about Game B at GameB.org, that's Game-B.org, and find Jim Rutt at the JimRuttShow.com and on Twitter at Jim underscore Rutt, that's two T's. This is Agora Politics, where we're updating our outdated theories of politics. Now I give you Jim Rutt. Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Jim Rutt. Jim Rutt is host of The Jim Rutt Show, a podcast series examining cutting-edge thinking in science and technology, as well as former CEO of Network Solutions and former chairman of the Santa Fe Institute for Complex System Sciences. And for our conversation today in particular, he's also the progenitor of Game B, a civilizational-level social operating system for human flourishing. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. Thank you for coming on. Uh, I think as I told you before this got started, I've been waiting uh, quite a long time to talk to you. And uh, I'm so glad to finally have you here in person and pick your brain a little bit about this concept called Game B. Uh, Before we get into the details of it, do you want to just briefly go over, uh, if you will, the uh, the origins of, of the term and sort of how how it came came to be you know put into both your pub, your consciousness and the public consciousness for those of us who are aware of it uh, more generally. Uh, sure. Uh, first, I would say I was I'm not the progenitor of it, though I was one of the group founders. It was clearly a group effort. So let's make sure we give credit to what we refer to as the old gangsters, about uh, a dozen, 15 people that uh, that did the work to bring it into being. Uh, it was actually a pivot in the uh, kind of venture capital sense. We originally started off in 2012 trying to create a political party called the Emancipation Party. 
And in fact, our old website is still up because it's got some very interesting things on it at emancipationparty.org. If you want to see what we're up to, go check it out. I will say we were completely incompetent, didn't know what we were doing, and we were not successful. Although, uh, in truth, what we found, we did some, you know, being a lot of ex-business people, uh, I think we had four ex-CEOs amongst our uh, 13-person startup team, uh, we did some market research to find out why our recruiting was going so slow or, or slower than we'd like. And we found that uh, it was popular amongst boomers. It was tolerably popular amongst Gen Xers, but it was completely unacceptable to millennials. And we said, mm -hmm. hmm, political party completely unacceptable to millennials. There's a really bad idea. So uh, we dug into that a little bit more and we discovered that the, even the mere concept of a political party was anathema to millennials, at least in 2012. You might as well have been trying to sell cat shit with powdered sugar on it, right? And uh, so we uh, had a brainstorming session. And the way we did uh, both uh, the Emancipation Party and Game B uh, was actually quite interesting. We flew in uh, a group of people uh, from all around the country and even later in from Canada to a little town in Virginia, Stanton, Virginia. And we would meet for three days and brainstorm face-to-face -face, uh, with uh, social events in the middle, nice dinners, too much liquor some nights. And then we'd, uh, we had our online uh, world in base camp where we'd continue the discussions. And the combination of face-to-face online was um, was magic you know for various reasons i went back and reviewed some of the stuff that's uh, in our online system which i've archived and kept it's amazingly good stuff and i've long said that online by itself produces weak links and frankly weak stuff mostly i mean just read twitter you know just mm -hmm. endless amounts of performative horseshit basically uh and face to face is great for building real relationships with people and building strong links but it's expensive, you know, flying people to, uh, you know, cross country to Virginia every six weeks uh, got to be pretty expensive. And uh, but the combination of the two were, was magical. And so I, I think that's a really interesting thing to uh, keep in mind about how Game B came uh, into existence. Uh, but anyway, when uh, in terms of the actual emergence of the name and concept Game B uh, in this uh, session in January 2013, we're saying, hmm, what do we do? Uh, a guy named Jordan Hall uh, mm -hmm. got to the whiteboard and he said, okay, here's a party, and, and but it's too steep. Millennials can't deal with it. Let's think about a broader, uh, much more powerful, in some sense, social movement concept that would be an on-ramp maybe eventually to a political party. And we started saying, all right, what, what is the fundamental diagnosis of our political party, which is that you know the world is fucked and it needs to be unfucked, right, basically, uh, in some very major ways. And so he started enumerating on the board, blah, blah, blah. And he said, okay, he just called the status quo game A and the, stat and the new idea of the new emerging society game B. And he called it a new social operating system, et cetera. And we you know, spent a couple hours on it. We went on to talk about other things. Uh, then in the online world between that meeting and the next face-to-face -face meeting, which was in March, a fellow named Thor Muller uh, had basically reviewed the, uh, uh, you know, I was thinking, thinking through. He's a real good marketing guy. And he said, you know what? We ought to call this thing Game B, right? Originally, it just been generic names on the whiteboard, right? No significance, no naming, no branding, uh, et cetera. This new thing we're cooking up. 
And so uh, everybody just said, shit, yeah, that's a great name. And so that's how uh, uh, the name came to be. Even the Game B logo was created by Thor at around that time, maybe a little thereafter. And while we've sparkled it up a little bit, not much, uh, we still use the same uh, uh, logo today. So that's essentially the origin story of uh, how Game B came to be. Oh, great. And uh, I wanted to then uh, move right into the comparison then, which is implied by the name, which is that, uh, you know, the, the meme on Twitter would be that, uh, you know, a game B implies the existence of a game A. Uh, and so what are the differing characteristics of what we would call game A, which is uh, one would presume the phase of civilization that we're in currently that game E is, uh, let's say, in opposition to? I wouldn't say opposition to, and that's a very important note. Uh, game A, uh, and, and there, there are different ways to think about the origins of Game A. There's, you can make an argument that goes back to the invention of architecture, I mean of agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my view, uh, and I think the most useful lens of uh, the origins of Game uh, A, is around 1700, uh, where we had the combination of uh, the beginnings of democracy with the glorious revolution in uh, Great Britain, where the uh, king was overthrown, new king was imported, king and queen were imported in the Netherlands, uh, and but their uh, powers were clearly that of a constitutional monarch with parliament in charge. Uh, at the same time, science had been invented, real true modern science. You know, Newton had published his works in the uh, 1660, 1670. Uh, mm. There have been a lot of, uh, you know, other good scientific work, uh, uh, Robert Boyle, etc. And so real science finally emerged right around that time. I mean, it almost emerged back in ancient Greece, but it didn't quite. Uh, and it had a second chance and it happened to gel at that time. And third, modern finance was invented at, at, in 1694 with the invention of the Bank of England, which was one of those interesting accidents of history. The King of England uh, needed some money. He'd gotten into trouble fighting too many wars uh, and actually uh, floated the Bank of England to private investors in return for loans. So the, the ability to essentially make money by doing loans, classic fractional reserve banking under the supervision of a central bank, in this case, a privately owned one, kind of like the Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. uh, was invented then. So th- th- those were the three antecedents that were necessary uh, for game A to get rolling. And at the same time, partially driven by science, but actually less so than you would think, uh, technology had been slowly starting to accelerate uh, in the 17th century and then exploded into the 18th century uh, with you know, all the famous things we learned about in fifth grade uh, social studies, you know, the spinning Jenny and uh, all the various uh, textile oriented stuff, uh, the early steam engines, the new Komen steam, steam engine. Uh, which was so inefficient, it was really only useful at the mouth of coal mines for pumping water out of coal mines because you could have essentially infinite free coal, so you didn't care how inefficient it was. Then James Watt famously massively improved it in the late 18th century, uh, and you combine the uh, you know the growing uh, set of automations around textiles in particular, but also other things, uh, and combine that with steam engines, you know that really came into their into the fore around 1800. And things started really taking off. And then science started driving technology. Uh, While science was not very important at all to those technologies, uh, it was very important to the next uh, range of technologies, 
the improvement of the internal combustion engine, uh, the creation of internal combustion engines, uh, massive improvements in efficiency in the steam engines as we started learning about thermodynamics. And then, of course, the big magical one of the 19th century, electricity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, electricity uh, is... Uh, beyond really crude stuff, you need some science to understand it. You can't just do it by rules of thumb. Uh, uh, though the early telegraph was kind of built by rules of thumb, but anything beyond that, you really do need science. You know, Faraday and uh, uh, folks like that. And of course, electricity just took off extraordinarily rapidly in the late 19th century uh, with uh, you know the light bulb and the uh, AC and DC electrical generator wars and the electrification of cities. And then electric motors, which actually is an underrated innovation, also came around in the in the 19th century. Uh, so those were uh, essentially what game A was, and what, what I at least like to call game A. And we live in that world today. We live mm -hmm. in the world uh, that's uh, you know directly related to that. And the power of game A is the world that it found in 1700 was a world where most people lived really poor. You know, they lived in huts with dirt floors, you know, life expectancies, 35 thereabouts, maybe 40. 50% uh, of children died before they were five. Uh, you know, most clothing was made at home and got people had two sets of clothes and they stank most of the time. Uh, life was not good, uh, you know, uh, in, at least looking back from today in 1700. And those uh, three things, uh, you know, modern finance, uh, democratic, at least democratic-ish uh, governance uh, and uh, science with technology uh, kind of rolled forward and brought humanity an unbelievable distance in 300 years, a little over, uh, where now the number of people who are desperately in the poor has just been falling like you can't believe, particularly over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, and of course, uh, us people in the West uh, I was uh, telling someone this morning that, you know, a welfare mother in the United States today lives a lot better than Louis XIV did, right? Mm. Uh, you know, if, no, if for no other reason than modern dentistry. In fact, I went to the dentist today, so I appreciate modern dentistry. Uh, however, this is where uh, game A, it's done miracles. I mean, it's truly done miracles for the capabilities of the human race the quality of our lives, the leisures we have. You know, you and I'd be out busting our ass in a field someplace, probably, uh, rather than uh, shooting the shit on Skype uh, if it were, uh, you know, 1675. Frankly, even if it was 1775. Uh, so, we, you know, it's done an tr amazing transformation for the capacity of the human race. However, because it started from a, such a tiny little base where humanity was a fairly small pimple on the world. You know, we did, we did not have fossil fuels in 1700, right? The first coal mine in the United States was in 1804. Before that, it was uh, water power. Uh, and so humanity was in really no real risk to deplete uh, or reach the limits, the carrying capacity of the Earth. The population of the United States in 1776, two and a half million people, about the size, a little bit uh, less than the population of Kentucky today, right? So again, uh, let's say in the United States, you know, England was, I don't know, 10 million, something like that, 12 million, 15 million, it was small. Uh, so humans were not this uh, massive dominant uh, thing on the earth. We weren't tearing the atmosphere apart, uh, you know, et cetera. And we were dirt poor. And so uh, we saw that through the, through the magic of game A, we could get a lot richer. Uh, and then once we solved 
uh, real medicine, which was remarkably late in the day, about 1870. We did not understand biology at all until 1870. We thought life was magic uh, mm. until Pasteur and some others, and, and probably medicine was killing more people than it was saving until around 1870, 1880. And of course, the biggest innovations were public health, uh, keeping your sewage out of your water and things of that sort. And so starting around 1870, just this massive population explosion, almost straight up by any historical uh, terms, the population growth started up about 1625, started slowly, slowly accelerating through these uh, 17th into the 18th, then started accelerating the 19th. But late in the 19th, it started going almost straight up. And uh, we now have 8 billion people. And we, we talked about ma nature I mean, humans not really impinging that much on my nature, say, in uh, you know, 1675. Today, humans plus their domestic animals constitute the majority of the large mammal mass on Earth. Wow. That's crazy. Even Here's an even crazier statistic. Uh, and, that, uh, and then for birds, our domestic poultry are about 80% of the mass of all bird life on Earth. You know, what? That's crazy, right? It was nothing like that when Game A got started. So Game A had no sense of limits, no sense of breaks. It basically was this four, it's this machine that spins, and uh, the, the Game B analysis is the inter-engine that's driving it today uh, is money-on-money money return. Everything is driven around money-on-money money return, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that happens at any level of significance, business, politics, even culture today, you know, uh, the, you know this goddamn phenomenon of internet influencers, what a corrupt thing that can be, you know, and that's mm-hmm. utterly, been utterly corrupted by money-on-money money return. Uh, so money-on-money money returns driving the machine forward faster and faster and faster, uh, and we're consuming more and more and more, uh, and but we are now at, and most analysts who are really honest will tell you, we are past the long-term carrying capacity of my nature, at least at our current level of civilization. And, uh, you know, of course, as our technology has gotten stronger and stronger and stronger, our ca- capacity to do serious and perhaps existential harm to the human race, uh, you know, has come into existence. Again, you know, even, say, 1775, 1776, uh, you know, we had gunpowder cannons and sailing ships and, you know, muskets and stuff. All right, you could kill a fair number of people, but it took a lot of work to even kill, uh, you know, 1% of the population. Uh, you know, of course, the, the most dramatic phase change was the development of nuclear weapons in uh, 1945 and then the hydrogen bomb soon thereafter. Uh, where Well, if we didn't have quite the capacity to kill off the human race, we certainly quickly developed the capacity to destroy advanced civilization. Uh, mm. But then we have a lot of other uh, possibilities, things like CRISPR, you know, the ability to uh, edit genes, you know, with, uh, and it's not that hard. That's the scary thing about it. Uh, you know, what uh, you know, James Bond supervillain uh, is building a weaponized version of Ebola in their basement, right? Uh, God knows what that might do. And then, uh, you know, guys like Bill Joy have been talking for a long time about the potential existential risks around nanotechnologies. Now, nanotech has taken longer than he thought, and a lot of other people did. But mm-hmm. at some point, the idea of little teeny machines uh, that can literally manipulate uh, the structure of matter, uh, one could imagine that going wrong and turning, you know, as Bill Joy talked about, turning the whole world into gray goo. Not so good, right? And then, uh, and then we have our inadvertent uh, technologies that may be destroying our ability to function. Uh, you know, in the Game B world, we talk a lot about the sense-making crisis. 
yes. and the meaning crisis. And you know, I've been involved with building what we now call the internet since 1980, uh, where I went to work for a company called The Source, the very first on consumer online information service. We had chat, we had bulletin boards, we met a precursor of social media in 1981. And we thought we were doing work for the good and that you know we would have this wonderful world where all the citizens were well-informed, democracy would flourish, everything would be wonderful. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, we were not smart enough, you know, truthfully, uh, complexity science would tell us nobody's smart enough to see how this thing would unfold as it scales. And now that we have billions of people uh, shattering it away at each other on these networks, uh, what has what has seemed to happen is not uh, you know the heyday of democracy, uh, but rather some form of nervous breakdown of our social ability uh, to actually uh, have a decent information sphere and to make good political decisions. And, and I mean literal literal nervous breakdown, as in our nervous systems are overwhelmed by the level of content and disruption that's been brought on by our engagement with these systems. Yeah, absolutely. And our inability as individuals to process these flows at all accurately, right? Uh, we were not designed, you know, I, I try hard to ration my use of online. Uh, and in fact, I'm looking forward here in another month to starting my uh, every year six month sabbatical from social media. In particular, I am so fucking tired of Twitter. Uh, I'll be so glad to not even look at Twitter for six months because it's it just uh, the brain is not designed to process that shit. We're not good at it. Right. And Game B believes uh, that, you know, particularly in the info sphere, uh, the answer is to not attempt to be good enough yourself, but to use collective forms of sense making. Uh, work with groups of people to try to make sense of the world, uh, and also to you know use good hygiene around technology. Almost you might call it neo Mennoniteism or neo Amish, and say, uh, you know, I'm not going to use social media. Or at least I'm not going to use the most pernicious forms of social media. Or we'll develop our own forms of social media that aren't specifically designed to have you know some of the world's smartest computers uh, mine our behavior and then pimp us out to advertisers and uh, use that knowledge to keep us online. Uh, for the longest period of time possible and to put us in a psychological state uh, to make us amenable to advertising, which is essentially the business model of Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and yeah. so we, for instance, we have uh, are leaving Facebook and we now have our own Game B site, uh, game-b.org, uh, which is uh, a online community of uh posts and groups and documents and things of that sort, but it is uh, much cooler in its interface, has no machine learning behind it, does not use your uh, your behavior against you. And so we think there are some ways to capture most of the good things about social media, but not in a format that's driven by money on money return, escalate, 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 get the yield up, get the yield up, drive the price of ads up, drive the price of ads up uh, in this crazy cycle uh, that uh, that Facebook uh, is doing. So anyway, that's game A. Uh, it has no breaks. It did miraculous things, uh, but it has overstayed its time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then, of course, the other one that I, I personally really focus on, uh, you know, the market economies are, again, are really good ideas. And I am no socialist, I can tell you that. Uh, uh, on the other hand, I'm not a late stage, highly financialized capitalist guy either. I think both are wrong. And this is, you know, what is so broken about our politics, you know, uh, team red and team blue politics is basically hyper-capitalists yelling at socialists, right? Both are, are wrong. We need something new and different. Uh, 
that has the self-healing and self-learning and self-driving trajectories of uh, uh, market capitalism, but does not have this uh, no breaks, uh, no sense, uh, no social uh, orientation that um, you know our current late-stage capitalism has. And one of the you know the, I think the signs of true brokenness is scale. Uh, in 1776, which is one of the most interesting he years in history, two big things, Declaration of Independence, but also John, uh, John uh, Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations, the first actual economics book. And mm -hmm. one could call it the, uh, you know, the charter for uh, market capitalism, um, uh, though it's not nearly as extreme as some people make it big, but nonetheless. Uh, in the United States in 1776, the largest business, uh, at least non-slave business, had 100 employees. It was a shipyard in Philadelphia. You, uh, you compare the scale of a shipyard with 100 employees building wooden ships by hand uh, to a family farm that might have had 10 people on it, uh, including the farm laborers, etc. It's a factor of 10 to 1. Uh, and so the, the power of that shipyard was relatively modest. It was certainly bigger, more than a family farm or a corner uh, blacksmith or something, but it was, you know, factor of 10. Um, today, we have companies like Amazon and Walmart that employ millions of people, you know, hundreds of 100 billion plus in revenue. And you compare that to a, now, we don't typically don't even have our own small businesses. Mostly, we're just individual wage slaves uh, working for some company there. And so, the asymmetry and power between you know uh, Mary Random working as a uh, you know uh, an entry level position in uh, in some business somewhere and Amazon, it's like totally uh, incommensurable. It's a factor of uh, you know more than a million to one. In fact, it would be three million to one approximately in terms of economic power. And that's just uh, a completely different game than what we were playing in 1776. And so game A, you know, again, has no ability to change course. And so we believe that it all has to be rethought and reinvented uh, to actually work for humanity and uh, get humanity back on a track that one works within the uh, carrying capacity of the earth, uh, that operates within the cognitive capacity of humans upgrades the cognitive capacity of humans in multiple ways. One, you know, raising our children more intelligently, uh, educating them more intelligently, operating socially for trying to make sense of the world and to govern ourselves uh, using better mechanisms than first-past-the-post elections, uh, etc. Uh, and preserve humanity, because, uh, you know, if we don't do something, humanity is going to crash. I mean, this we are past the limits as I say, in many, many dimensions. And so to try to bring us back into a sustainable world, my goal would be to have humanity uh, reach a, a sane, a sustainable, good way of living by the end of this century. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we'll operate in an intelligent fashion. And then we'll start to slowly open back up again. And my own personal goal is to go explore the universe. Why the hell not, right? Uh, or at least find it. Well, two, it's kind of a fork. Uh, people say, what's, you know, what is your deep meaning? It's, I don't have any deep meaning, you know, you know, famous for saying, when I hear the word metaphysics, I reach for my pistol, right? <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, and so I don't give uh, two fucks about uh, most of that kind of stuff. Uh, but I do see that, uh, you know, if humanity cannot torch itself over the next uh, 80 years or so, uh, in the long term, say 10,000 years, uh, we mm. can probe the universe, see if there's anybody else out there, 
And there's, you know, more and more reason to believe maybe there isn't, right? Uh, you know, this is a great famous argument. I talk about it in my podcast all the time, the Fermi paradox. I've had experts on the topic and nobody knows. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a bunch of arguments that say maybe we're by ourselves and other ones say maybe there's a whole bunch of them out there. And then, and then there's other analysis that say there's just a few. But if it turns out that we're alone, let's say at least in our galaxy, then the burden on humanity to preserve itself becomes even greater. Because I would say we have an opportunity to bring the universe to life. You know, and I would say life is more interesting than non-life. And for uh, humanity to blow its chance to bring the universe to life would be a gigantic sin. And so that's at least my personal, Jim Rutt's, reason for doing this Game B thing is to preserve our, you know, to, to morph our civilization into something that is sane, uh, uh, where individuals are sovereign, uh, live beautiful lives, but at low impact on the earth. And But we are not hippies looking to live in mud huts and, and fall back away from advanced technology. But we use technologies for the good of humanity, not in this constant chasing of money on money return. So that was kind of mm -hmm. rambling. And, you know, I've, I've done a better job of presenting it. But uh, I think that gives people a reasonable idea what we're up to. Yeah, that certainly gives me a lot of uh, a lot of materials to start working with uh, here in these next follow-up questions I have. Uh, I wanted to first uh, stay a little bit focused still on game A here. Um, so, you know, this money on money return concept, this idea that uh, game A is sort of the, the mechanistically driven, uh, you know, it seems to me that you're focusing more on, uh, on uh, you know, on, on this the engine of capitalism uh, and it's sort of blindingly driving forward without really consideration for what it's doing or how it's affecting people. You know, people like to uh, like to hate on Amazon, for example, because it's this massive corporation and, you know, they've got anti-competitive practices and whatever your criticisms of Amazon might be. Um, but uh, we, we can all blame Jeff Bezos for that if we'd like. But at the end of the day, the thing is that uh, no one's really running Amazon. You know, an organization that large is sort of just running itself. You've got all these nodes of people that are, you know, involved in the Amazon network that are, you know, doing their own things and have their own self-interests at heart. Um, and even the guy at the top has somewhat limited control over, you know, what is actually happening with with a with an or organization that large. It's almost more like an organism, uh, and. and and it's sort of uh, like all the little people working for Amazon are more like mitochondria inside of it uh, rather than, you know, the agents of, of change that, the, that we or they might imagine that they are. Um, and so uh, this is a, a, a classic critique of, of capitalism um, that it sort of creates these very inhuman machines that kind of just drive forward. Uh, decentralization is a core uh, principle of Game B and obviously – uh, has become much more popular in general, especially with the rise of, um, of, of let's say, blockchain technology, cryptographic ledgers, distributed uh, databases, essentially. Um, do you see cryptocurrencies and sort of the crypto space playing a role in sort of deleveraging the centralized financial mechanism that's driving Game A? I think it can be. Though, again, I've... I've been following uh, 
call it blo uh, blockchain style cryptocurrency since about two months after Satoshi uh, published his uh, famous paper. I smacked myself in the head and said, God damn it, Rut, why didn't you think of that? It's not really that hard, uh, but it's brilliant. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I do think that we've gotten way too over-invested in that one narrow uh, definition of uh, new forms of communication and signaling. And so I think that uh, new forms of uh, coordination signaling are certainly part of what's going to make Game B come into emergence and allow it to cohere. Uh, but whether it's cryptocurrency based on you know the current approaches, uh, I have my doubts, right? They're, they have lots and lots of functional problems. They have some, what I would call, deep moral problems. In fact, uh, uh, Bitcoin is probably exactly wrong on almost every dimension uh, to be uh, what we'd actually want in the future. I mean, it, it, was act, it was modeled on gold and has all the vices of gold and, uh, and some new ones. You know, you know, for instance, uh, what is the actual single use case for Bitcoin where it's superior uh, to all other uh, methods of doing business. Ransomware. It's the only one, right, uh, I, that I could argue. Now, Ethereum takes us to a new place. Mm -hmm. Now, I think Ethereum is a very interesting opening into uh, the world of the future. Uh, and the thing that distinguishes Ethereum from Bitcoin is the ability to write relatively complete uh, contracts in a programming language, which allow you to do a fair amount uh, in the blockchain and, in, and in, on this distributed ledger. Uh, and I think that is quite interesting. But Ethereum has got a horrible architecture. It doesn't scale. They talk about all this shit they're going to do to make it scale. It ain't going to happen. Uh, we now have some third generation projects like Cardano yes. uh, and Holochain, uh, which are more scalable, but still not as scalable as you might hope, uh, and also have uh, better semantics in terms of what you can actually implement on them than Ethereum does. So, uh, so my thinking is that uh, Bitcoin was a rough prototype with a whole bunch of bad design decisions, but hey, got the ball rolling. Ethereum still has some really bad design decision, decisions in it, like uh, proof of work. What an idiot idea that is in terms of anything that's scalable. Uh, but it added the very, very cool idea of contracts. Uh, mm -hmm. Next generation ones are more scalable and have uh, fuller contracts, and particularly in the case of Cardano, uh, better, much better security. Uh, and so they're moving in the right direction. Um, on the other hand, uh, I, I think that there's some ideology in the current uh, crypto world, which keeps it from being more successful, uh, which is uh, a cultural demand for radical trustlessness in the architectures. Um, now, of course, it's not, yeah, it's not actually true, because it turns out that the core developers uh, have control at some level, right? Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and there's been lots of politics. And what do you do when there's a big heist? Uh, do you fork it or not to uh, roll back the heist, et cetera? I will say Bitcoin has always remained true to itself. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the least corrupted by, uh, by its uh, mafia, essentially. Uh, but most of the rest of them are corrupted to a greater or lesser degree by their mafias. And so you're not going to have 100% trustlessness anyway. Uh, and so if you back off from radical trustlessness even a little bit and use, for instance, federated trust, uh, you can increase the performance of uh, distributed ledgers uh, by a factor of six orders of magnitude, uh, which is quite remarkable. And now you start talking about uh, you know, scales that can approach that of Visa or MasterCard uh, and yet still operate with all the advantages of uh, you know, distributed uh, crypto cryptographically secure 
ledgers. And I suspect that that will be where blockchain gets out of this prototyping phase. This is where I describe it being today and breaks through into something truly interesting uh, when the ideology uh, you know, of the current crypto people are kind of bypassed by something that doesn't require radical 100% trustlessness, but scales way better. Because uh, in reality, we have to trust something in life. Trustlessness mm -hmm. is, 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 uh, is, is a false comfort in many ways. Uh, except nothing else, uh, even Bitcoin trusts the ongoing uh, operation of an electrical grid. You know, what happens if the grid goes down in an EMP attack or a massive solar flare? Whoops, all them Bitcoin. I have a couple of fractions of Bitcoin on an old computer sitting in uh, uh, my barn. I have no idea if those computers even still work, uh, but it's probably uh, $10,000 worth of Bitcoin sitting on them. Um, uh, but if the, you know, the computer networks go down, what the hell are you going to do then? Uh, so, uh, so anyway, that's, you know, I think what's, there's amazingly interesting thinking. It's opened up a big space. I think distributed finance, DeFi, is really interesting, frankly, more interesting than uh, uh, crypto itself in its current manifestations. And so all these things uh, are well worth uh, working on, doing experiments on, et cetera. But keep in mind that these are basically just prototypes. Mm hmm yeah, so they're definitely not at the stage yet where they can scale to the level that we would need them to function uh, as sort of a, uh, a unit of exchange or uh, maybe even a store of value, you could argue. And stores um, of, oh, by the way, this is real important. Stores of value are bad ideas, right? You don't want stores of value. Uh, that And this is where people's thinking is all fucked up, right? Uh, Bitcoin is like gold, right? If, if instead of taking your, what, what is your savings, right? The source of investment is savings, basically, theoretically, it's what you have produced that you did not consume. Mm -hmm. And to put it in gold is no different than taking $100 bills and put it in your mattress, right? You essentially are not investing your savings back into the world. So I would say Bitcoin as a store of value is a grossly uh, antisocial, indeed sociopathic thing to do. Uh, what you should be doing is invest your savings in productive assets, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in putting it in the bank is uh, kind of an intermediate case because the bank will use that as uh, it's, use its famous multiplier effect and will uh, use it to make loans to people to grow their businesses, et cetera. But a lot of that loans will also be for consumer capitalism, which is not so good. Uh, but to, better to take your savings and invest it in a business, start a business yourself, invest it with somebody you know who's starting a business, pool with other people uh, to start a business, et cetera. So this idea of store of value, I think, is a pernicious one that people should get out of their head. You do not want to put your uh, saved production, the production you did not consume, into a sterile store of value. You want to make sure it gets to work, uh, creating more stuff for the world. Well, so I'm a big fan of Peter Thiel, and he says that one of the problems uh, with our current system or, or with the allocation of, of money is that people don't know where to put it. Um, and so when you talk about, I, I think this is part of the reason why there's such an urge to have some sort of store of value. You know, the, 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 the Bitcoin hodlers are, you know, many of them are basically treating it like, well, I don't have anything better to do with this money other than put it into these coins and hope that they go to the moon. Um, and, you know, and Teal, Teal would say, look, uh, that's actually a symptom of the, the broader economy in general. You know, as I'm sure you understand, we've had stagnating growth since basically the, the mid 1970s. Uh, real growth has slowed down. And so 
one of the questions there is, uh, you know, if, if it's true that your money would be better spent being invested in productive assets, how, how do we get the engine of uh, productivity going again in, in the real economy? Um, because I think one of the one of the crew, one of the crucial criticisms that uh, Bitcoiners and people that are long on crypto in general have is that part of the financial system that we've inherited is what's causing the slowdown in growth. The fact that we have these fiat systems that we're working within. So how do you think about um, sort of rebooting growth in a real way? Uh, by the way, I'm not uh, I don't entirely buy Teal's argument. Uh uh, I think he makes the mistake of, of uh, mistaking the macrosphere for growth, right? Uh, you know, one of the things that he talks about is, oh, what are the new home appliances? You know, nothing's happened since 1975 except maybe the uh, microwave oven, right? Uh, on the other hand, everything in our house is a shitload better than it used to be. You know, you're, you're probably too young. I remember when TVs had tubes in them were highly unreliable, flickered all the time. Now I got this beautiful... Uh, uh, flat screen uh, display that's absolutely perfect, never has any problems, etc. You know, I got uh, everything's a whole lot better. Uh, everything's gotten smarter, and what I call that is growth into the microchasm. And by the way, this uh, swings both ways. You know, people claim they're anti-growth, right? I go, don't use that language, please. Even though I'm somewhat sim uh, sympathetic to your thinking, uh, instead say that you are opposed to growth in the macrosphere. Right. Stuff that uses more matter, that puts a bigger burden on Mother Nature. Uh, but get, having higher capacity chips, for instance, is a great way to grow into the microsphere. And an unbelievable amount of that's happened since 1975. So uh, Peter Thiel uh, is overly fixated on a 1925 view of what growth actually is. So I think that's that's important. You know, there's uh, there's a, a lot going on in the world that. Uh, uh, doesn't show up in terms of gross stuff, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot that goes on, for example, that doesn't directly uh, show up in the GDP numbers, let's say. Uh, and one of the core concepts of Game B that I'd like to get into is this concept of human flourishing, which uh, I think you would say that, uh, well, you could say it yourself, actually, but I would say that uh, there are going to be many different definitions of, of human flourishing. Uh, and so if uh, one of the uh, one of the core driver or one of the core principles of game B is to um, is to maximize or potentiate human flourishing, uh, we have to sort of get an idea about uh, at least for various kinds of game B projects, what our conception of human flourishing might be. You know, there's a lot of conversation, for example, around the fact that child care or home care or just general care, is not properly, they'll say it's not properly compensated in the market, right? This is a very common argument, um, especially in more uh, more socially, uh, you know, socially democratic or socially uh, justice oriented circles. They'll say, well, look, there's all this, uh, there's all this labor that happens in the home and elsewhere, child care, care for elders, care for sick people. And we don't really have any good mechanisms for compensating that care properly. Um, do you think that Framing it in those terms of proper compensation is the wrong way to think about it, uh, because certainly if we're thinking about human flourishing, humans caring for other humans would be a big part of that. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a piece of it for sure. Uh, and uh, you know, come address a couple different parts of your uh, of your question. Uh, one, we do believe in game B in pluralism. Uh, we don't believe there is one way for human flourishing. 
uh, for example. In fact, the current uh, epoch of game B, we call it the very beginnings of proto-B, uh, where uh, actual settlements on the ground are starting to be built. Two projects have actually bought their land. There's another one that's looking to buy some land soon. And we have some fairly uh, you know, macro definitions of what a proto-B is. On the other hand, we expect each one to be quite different. Uh, some will be uh, uh, essentially voluntarily socialist, like an Israeli kibbutz, right? The Israeli kibbutz is very interesting, uh, particularly along the lines uh, you talked about, about uh, compensated and uncompensated work. Uh, in an Israeli kibbutz, people that do the cooking, that do the buying of uh, uh, food, that do the laundry, that clean the houses, they're all paid the same as the lawyer and the electrical engineer who work on their high-tech businesses, at least in the in those kibbutzes that keep to the old original kibbutz uh, style, which is about 20% of them. And so there's a mechanism that one could um, uh, essentially fully compensate all that service work at exactly equality with all other kinds of work. Now, uh, uh, since 1977, the kibbutzes have fragmented into various directions, and some of them uh, now have uh, you know, differential pay for differential jobs, but all the social work, the work of society, is still paid, it's still built in. Uh, so when you become a member of a kibbutz, babysitting is built in. You have childcare, right? You don't have to go arrange it somehow. Part of the social contract of living in a kibbutz is that there will be, so, uh, there will be uh, childcare, there will be education. Uh, you know, there will be some recreational things like swimming pools and tennis courts. You know, they have their own private parks. It's uh, really quite amazing. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, a quite interesting model for at least uh, a number of people who want to go further down the road to game B uh, in those ways. And doing exactly as you say, uh, build, uh, build in the fact that the work of social, of holding our society together is real work and should be compensated like all other work. Mm-hmm. Um, and given the, uh, I guess, so, 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 so you hinted there at, uh, you know, sort of getting out of game A, right. Uh, and mo moving into these sort of more experimental, I'll, I'll just say communities. They're not quite communes, although maybe they would manifest in, in some variants. Some of them though. might be, yeah. some, some might be, others are not. Uh, and that's the interesting thing about the proto B uh, exploration is that, uh, you know, I, I would guess there'll be 20 to 50 proto-Bs spun up in the next four or five years, and mm -hmm. each one will be different in terms yeah. of its ethos and its constitution. I expect, you know, some of them will be radically egalitarian, uh, others will be radically libertarian, uh, and will kind of look like, uh, you know, a real, estate, a, sub, a real estate subdivision with a really uh, powerful community center and organization around it, and there'll be a whole bunch in between. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, further... Uh, you know, again, one of the core concepts of game B, how do we get from game, uh, these little bit, bitsy experimental game Bs uh, to, to actually winning is that uh, we strongly encourage uh, proto Bs and anybody playing game B to figure out how to parasitize game A, right? Uh, it's our hypothesis, not yet proven, uh, that our decentralized, non-hierarchical, network-centric ways of doing things uh, at least in uh, in some domains, will actually be able to outcompete game A at its own thing, and mm. so uh, we uh, some of the uh, you know the third proto B is going to be is looks to be focused on uh, you know uh, 
digital knowledge workers who want, don't want to live in the big city anymore, but still will have ways to make big, big city earnings, right? Yeah. Uh, and and the, you know, the idea of a proto-B also is that it's inexpensive to live there because it's not about status through possessions. Houses will be small. People will just wear ordinary clothes. You know, uh, you know people will be thought to be complete ass clowns if they drive up in a Mercedes. Uh, you know, the, the cultures will be, uh, you know, you live just fine on 60000 a year, right? Uh, yeah. maybe, maybe less. And yet you're still making 200,000 a year because we're running kick-ass businesses that are out competing, uh, you know, uh, game A and things like data science and uh, machine learning and uh, certain areas of robotics, et cetera. Uh, and all that, uh, you know, savings, basically the uh, work that is not consumed can then be plowed back into building more game B. Use that as the seed capital to uh, spin up more and more and more uh, proto Bs. You know, and, and as you, as you know, uh, if you can get the exponential over one, sooner or later you win. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so parasitizing game A. Uh, and at the same time, building places that are much better to live. Well, when people see what we have done, come visit, because uh, tourism will also be part of a lot of the early uh, proto-bees, and say, do I want to live in New York City and deal with the, you know, or even worse, San Francisco, and deal with, you know, shit on the streets and million-dollar, uh, thousand-square-foot uh, condos and, you know, ridiculous restaurants that, you know, everything's just oversaturated, overdone, or in a place where all my social needs are baked into the community, uh, you know, takes it might take me 15 or 20 hours of work uh, a week, uh, you know, a week to maintain. If that's all I want to do, if I want to work more than that, I can provide a surplus to help grow Game B. Uh, and we believe that more and more people, particularly young people, because yes. um, young people have seen through Game A, right? That was part of the reason they rejected our Emancipation Party because it wasn't different enough from Game A, right? It still assumed Game A. That was our mistake. Uh, when they wasn't, I, I would say it wasn't deep enough. It was not deep enough. Absolutely. It was clever, superficial. Uh, and there were some cool things that we had a monetary system. We had, we had all kinds of radical shit, uh, but it wasn't deep enough. You're exactly right. Uh, and when they see a, a flourishing game B community, uh, it doesn't have to be all of them, you know, one or 2% is all you need initially, right? The classic, uh, innovator types say, I would much rather live in this beautiful proto B in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and oh, by the way, uh, you know, have a uh, sales force that's selling my technical services into corporate America at 300 bucks an hour. Uh, and in the meantime, I only really need about uh, 30 bucks an hour to live here. And, yeah. uh, and the rest is about building game B for the world. Uh, and, and we think as that starts to scale, uh, we will start pull and pulling people over. And of course, the interesting thing about a hypothesis, not proven, is that we will be pulling the smartest, most interesting people over because they're the ones that are going to get it first. And if you pull all the brains out of game A, guess what? <laughs> game A starts to collapse. Yeah. Uh, well, I, 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 would, I would say something about that, too. There is a problem in game A about uh, sort of the worst aspects of our of our society attracting the smartest minds by just paying them absorbent amounts like finance, for example. Um, but uh I wanted to just uh, make a note here uh, about my friend, uh, my friend Jason Snyder. So my friend Jason Snyder and I—I I don't know if you know of him. Maybe you do. Oh yeah, I've uh, had with him. He's a cool dude. He lives down North Carolina. He's doing yeah, some he's... hardcore homesteading. Yeah, we uh, we chat uh, from time to time, mostly mostly in email. But yeah, I definitely uh, love what Jason's up to. 
Yeah, so you know he's doing the whole thing, and we had a conversation about uh, about homesteading actually at the beginning of this year, uh, you know, and he's uh, he's been you know tr- nudging me to you know like c- come out come out you know come out to uh, I think he's in North Carolina now, yeah. uh, come out to North Carolina you know uh, you know get a plot of land and uh, you know we'll set up a community and and I asked him about this exact uh, problem this problem of well how do you go from uh, how do you make the transition from game A into game B? How do you begin to uh, let, I mean, how do you begin this parasitization problem? Because one of the issues that especially a lot of young people have who are still, for example, uh, like myself, in need of uh, of some capital to, to get going uh, is that a lot of the jobs, for example, are still in the cities. Uh, and, uh, and in my case, uh, and as well as for many of the other younger millennials, as well as a lot of the Gen Z that are now coming up, uh, I have a lot of debt, right. From my college education, um, and from just, you know, the, the sort of systems that I was enmeshed in. Uh, and so I'm going to have to get out of that debt in order to even begin to start establishing some, uh, some sovereignty about, you know, where I live and, uh, you know, vocationally, et cetera. Um, and uh, it's it's going to be hard. I'll just say that um, it's it's going to be hard for most people that aren't, uh, you know, extremely well positioned uh, for whatever reason. Um, and so how do you think about this issue of vocation? Because you do need to do something to make money. I know you've talked about remote jobs. Uh, when Jason and I were talking, he was saying also that, uh, you know, I, I, I was pushing on him that Look, uh, one of the bigger problems that you're going to have trying to establish these communities is you're not really breaking away from the global supply chain. Um, and so I, I would assume that you would say that, well, part of parasitizing game A is is just using the established structures and networks that game A has uh, and basically gathering those resources like what you're talking about uh, from the game, from playing game A well, uh, adeptly, and then funneling them into game B projects uh, and then slowly trying to get more independent from there. How do you think about individuals that are trying to make that transition? Yeah, uh, excellent question. And this is something I spent a tremendous amount of time thinking about it. And I would say an awful lot of the people in game B are thinking about high tech, you know, programmers and machine learning dudes and all this. But I also uh, stress the uh, fact that we need to make places for people at every level of occupation in game B. And so for instance, I've laid out the idea of a game B auto repair business. You know, one of the most corrupt businesses in the world is the goddamn auto repair business. Suppose we were to brand game B auto repair and that there are a number of uh, proto Bs that had as their business an auto repair business, right? And it had a mm-hmm. reputation for actually being honest and cost effective and, uh, you know, and qualified people doing the work and all that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, that could be one of several businesses in the same way the kibbutzes, the Israeli kibbutzes that are successful often have five or six different uh, outwardly facing businesses uh, that they have created. And it could be auto repair. It could be charter schools in those jurisdictions that offer, uh, you know, charter school laws that are reasonable, which unfortunately Virginia is not one of them. Uh, but New Mexico for sure is where I used to live. And, uh, you know, charter schools can provide uh, a number of good paying jobs, uh, you know, uh, for people in the in the community and yet and then bring in 
uh, you know, children from outside the community. Not only do our own kids get a good Game B education, but we also offer that as a product, uh, essentially, to the community. And, and I'm reimbursed by the state. What a wonderful way to parasitize uh, Game A. And, you know, teachers now are, are making pretty good money, you know, and uh, my hometown, I looked it up the other day, a teacher with 20 years experience making over $100,000 a year. Amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Virginia is not quite that high, uh, but still it's a good, solid middle-class job if you're not sucked into the world of status through possessions, right? If you don't believe you need to have a vacation in uh, uh, Acapulco or whatever the hell the hot place is, what's, a, a, what's the thing down at the end of... Uh, it's like uh, Cabo and... Yeah, uh, Cabo, that's it. That's the one thing. But it's kind of a trendy-ass place for goof-asses that don't understand what the fuck is going on, like to go and... Uh, and party and she says you don't need that shit that's just ridiculous right and uh, you don't need a car right uh, you know a community of 150 people probably get along fine with uh, 50 cars right and uh, maybe even less than that and uh, you know if you just rethink how one lives you grow most of your food on your own plot of land and a certain percentage of the people who live there they work the farm right and they're paid uh, just like you know socially just like the child care people and the people that do the cooking and the laundry uh, so uh, you know, you have, to, you have to think outside the box of just digital nomads and include other ways of, uh, of making a living. And it'll vary by where you are. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm targeting the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. There's uh, lots of industry over there, lots of logistics. Uh, there's uh, one, two, three big universities. Uh, yeah. Uh, so there's lots, and the universities have many jobs, not just professorial jobs that pay well. And so I would expect initially, uh, many of the people that live on a Shenandoah Valley, Virginia, Proto B, will just be working in the local industries, working at the universities, uh, uh, then start up a business or two, see if they work. Some will be digital nomads who can uh, just do their thing anywhere. Uh, and it'll you know gradually work itself into you know more and more focus. So again, I try not. I think we one of the most important things is that it's got to be an experimental and exploratory mindset. So now mm-hmm. to your next question, this is an interesting one. Is uh, you know the people who uh, you know uh, come in with the debt. I, mean, I will say we don't have a great answer to that. I would say in uh, things I've written, like in a journey to game B, which is probably my most complete thinking so far on uh, Game B's, uh, Proto B's. It's on Medium. It's called A Journey to Game B by Jim Rutt. Uh, I do suggest that people got to figure that one out on their own before they come into uh, a Proto B, that you don't want your Game A debts following you. Uh, And so uh, put yourself on a plan, pay off your goddamn debts, right? Even if it means living on ramen and uh, having roommates for four more years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now I know for some people that's impossible. People have got $200,000 worth of debt. I don't know what the fuck they do. They're just well and truly fucked. Right. I think the average amount of student debt these days is about 40 grand. Yeah. And, and realistically you could pay off 40 grand in, uh, four to 10 years. If you really focused on that as a priority, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's also possible. And again, I'm going to do some thinking about this. There might be a way to get, uh, investors to stake you in some fashion, right? Uh, which, you know, at the level of 40,000, it's feasible. The level of 200,000 is probably not feasible. You know, someone that's got a degree in uh, medieval history and $200,000 in debt, eh, frankly, they're probably stuck in game A, right? At least until uh, game B gets far enough along to do our real game changer, which is the debt jubilee. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I've talked about that in previous episodes. And, uh, yeah, I don't think it's happening. 
I don't think it's happening anytime soon. But uh, uh, look at the emancipationparty.org, and we mm-hmm. we lay out a magical trick how we can cause the jubilee to happen uh, relatively rapidly. I'm not going to say any more about it because it's a very dangerous idea, and if it got into the wrong hands, that would not be good. Uh, but uh, eventually, that's how uh, we free the rest of the debt slaves to bring them on board. Mm. Yeah, many, well, will able, many of them will be able to have jobs that, are, that pay well enough to service their debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we may be, there may be a way to get investors to stake them, to free them from their debt, uh, if they agree to do, you know, participate, let's say, in the social work of the community for five years, in the same way, you know, dentists and stuff will agree to practice dentistry in Appalachia for five years and in return for forgiveness of their uh, uh, dental, uh, dental school uh, mm-hmm. loans. A friend of mine did that. And, worked out great. Um, and But then finally, those who are deeply entrenched in debt slavery will have to wait for the debt jubilee. Yeah, well, I was going to say, uh, you brought up, uh, it's funny to me that you brought up auto mechanic or auto repair, because uh, I've got this book here, Shop Classes Soulcraft, uh, Shop Classes Soulcraft by Matthew Crawford, who, uh, similar to, not quite similar to me, but he he was also a political uh, political science, political theory guy who uh, actually, you know, made it all the way to the top. He was working at a DC think tank and uh, decided to leave that life and just go repair work on motorcycles. Um, and it's sort of a you know Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance type 2.0 situation. But he wrote this book about it, and that this whole book about uh, him deciding to do that and why he wanted to sort of have a more uh, down to earth, community based uh, vocation. Uh, it, it was very, very uh, influential on me uh, when I was younger, when I when I came upon it, and also is very similar to a lot of the things that we're talking about here today. Um, I wanted to ask you then a little bit about uh, this uh, concept of status. So you've talked a lot in your writings and in your other, um, you know, talks uh, about uh, this uh, th- these sort of status traps that we get caught up in in game A, uh, and. One of the criticisms that I, I just keep running into that I wanted to ask you about uh, is the fact that, you know, status hierarchies are really, really baked into humans. Um, I, I would claim that they're part of our human nature to uh, to be concerned with our status within the group, to want to achieve status. Uh, obviously, if you're a younger guy and you're still looking to find, uh, you know, a long term mate, uh, you want status because that's what's going to get you, uh, you know, a better partner. Um, and so, uh, I think that that's going to be one of the hardest hurdles to sort of get around is even inside of these proto B communities, how do you deal with the fact that there is this drive in human beings and I mean, in mammals more generally, uh, for status, especially social ones. Now there's a book you've got to read, uh, cause this is a very important question. It's called hierarchy in the forest by a, uh, cultural anthropologist named Chris Boehm, B-O-E-H-M. Uh, and he's been affiliated with the Santa Fe Institute. I think he's pretty much retired now. The book should have been called Anti-Hierarchy in the Forest, because essentially what he lays out is that you're absolutely right. If we look at our genealogy, you know, we're closely related to two rather hierarchical species, uh, bonobos and chimps. They're hierarchical in different ways, but they're both rather hierarchical. Uh, humans in their forager, you know, also known as hunter-gatherer epochs, however, managed to build egalitarian societies without much hierarchy. 
And they developed a whole social operating system to do that, which was when people tried to assert themselves as boss mans or big men or whatever. First, people ignored them. Then they laughed at them. Uh, then they exiled them. And if they kept coming back, they killed them. And uh, they essentially had built a uh, immune system against strong hierarchy. Uh, and it was a, quite flat, and at the, you know, famously up to about the Dunbar number of about uh, 150 people. And, and that's one of the reasons why we uh, suggest that proto-B communities be on, around that order. Because you don't really need very much hierarchy, you need a little. Uh, and a lot of it can be rotational. Again, like the Israeli kibbutz, they will often uh, time limit uh, your time in any uh, position of authority to three years. At three years, you got to go out, somebody else got to come in. Uh, and it may not be optimal in terms of getting the best talent uh, in the job, but their their belief is that the benefits of not building in hierarchy uh, more than make up in terms of quality of life. And again, that's, that's what we're after, right? About quality of life. We don't really want that fucking Mercedes. I mean, goddamn fucking Mercedes. I used to have a Mercedes way back yonder, you know. Uh, and then you worry about somebody dinging the fucking door, stealing it, or, you know, getting a flat. And if you have a goddamn repair on a Mercedes, it costs you out the ass. Unbelievable what it costs, right? Fuck all them things, right? Uh, you know, good old 10-year-old uh, Nissan Tacoma is better in almost every possible dimension, right, than a fucking Mercedes. 80s, right? Or even worse, a Porsche, right? Porsche's hell, hell of a good time to drive, but uh, you know, it's just a ridiculous thing that we get sucked into. But nonetheless, people are looking for ways to distinguish themselves, right? Yes. Uh, I wouldn't call it hierarchy, but you call it the ways to distinguish themselves. And what we have suggested, or uh, I know I've suggested, and, and other people in the community have suggested as well, is that uh, things like self-actualization is a way to distinguish yourself. And people are going to vary on that. Not only are they going to vary on how much they self-actualize, but the dimensions in which they self-actualize. You know, let's say you're an amazingly good guitar player who can riff and jam uh, my buddies that are guitar players they all got a lot of booty, right? Uh, even they got no money, right? Mm -hmm. The ladies like the, like the musicians. So there's, there's a way to have yourselves be distinguished, but in a non-hierarchical fashion. Uh, the other one I like to lay out because, hey, I'm a jovial kind of dude. It's conviviality. People that know how to have a good time, know how to throw a good party, know how to be a host, right? Uh, and I can tell you, some people also uh, do okay with the members of the op opposite sex. Uh, so there's an example of distinguishing yourself with a superpower. You know, here's a person that's a great convivial, convivialist, a guitar player, a storyteller, a shaman, uh, a, a person that helps people meditate. Uh, there's just so many ways that you can distinguish yourself that are not hierarchical. Uh, and particularly if you're, and the only reason you have the higher, why the hierarchy is so attractive in our world is because you get paid more. Oh, dare you go up to hierarchy, make more money, buy more bling, more shiny shit, get that Mercedes, worry about somebody keying it, right? Uh, it's a goddamn trap. Uh, mm. And so we don't believe that you need hierarchy, uh, at least not persistent hierarchy. And uh, the other idea we've stolen from Chris Boehm, uh, but of course other people come up with this as well independently of us and him is uh, what we call role-based leadership rather than position-based leadership. For instance, in the Dunbar number size uh, forager communities, uh, you know, the woman who's, you know, the expert at raising tubers is the person everybody goes to when they need advice or direction on farming, right? And the forager people did small-scale local agriculture as well. Uh, you know, the dude that just has that sixth sense for where the game is, uh, you know, he's the hunting master, right? 
but only as long as he is the best. When somebody else comes along that's better at that, uh, you know, he stops being the hunting master and somebody else is the hunting master and somebody else is the war master. Uh, you know, contrary to some of the hippie shit, uh, forager people fought all the time. You know, the, uh, the death, male death rate from violence uh, in hunter-gatherer uh, worlds was somewhere between 10 and 40 percent. Uh, this was not a uh, pacifistic world in most cases. There were a few specific ecosystems that could allow for pacifistic world. But in general, there was contention uh, between the groups. So, uh, you know, position-based leadership rather than uh, a box on a chart-based leadership Something, of course, we're going to have, right? No, you know, you'll want someone who's good at something uh, to, uh, you know, take on that work. It doesn't mean they get paid more necessarily. Uh, it doesn't mean they have that their status of being a place higher up on the box chart uh, means they're a better or more important person. But it does mean that they're, they're distinguished in a certain way, right? So if you want to be the mate of or the friend of somebody who's the garden woman versus the warrior dude, uh, or the, um, uh, you know, any of these other, you know, the musicians, the shamans, et cetera. Yeah, lots of different ways for people to distinguish themselves. In fact, yeah, almost an infinite number of ways. So yeah, I think so yeah, you think about distinguishing yourself, which everybody wants to do, or not everybody. There's a lot of people who just don't give a shit about that. But, you know, a lot of people want to distinguish themselves. There's lots of ways to distinguish yourself that are much richer and they give much more to the community than climbing the corporate ladder and figuring out how to fuck people over and maximize the amount of money you make. Yeah. Well, so the word that I would be, uh, that I'm sort of toying with here is competence-based leadership, right? With this sort yeah, of specialization, same. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, the same thing as role-based leadership. The same thing. So let's get into uh, let's get into governance and uh, on sort of the fractal level here. Uh, you've made references in prior conversations about Game B to this concept of liquid democracy. Do you think that uh, a liquid democracy or even democracy itself would be necessarily the primary form of governance uh, in these, um, let's say, you know, social ecosystems? Uh, this is a very good question. The answer is we don't know. Uh, I, I would say that I doubt that democracy is the right way to run a community of 150 people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, there may be sometimes some special issues for which democracy uh, is the last resort. Uh, but in general, in a, um, a community of 150 people, are going to want to operate by consensus mostly. And that's how the Israeli kibbutzes have done it. Uh, and one of our Game B folks, Forrest Landry, has come up with a very interesting hybrid, which I love. And I've uh, I got to say, I've taken his idea and I've extended it beyond which he is comfortable with. So this is not a for this is from uh, his core idea, small group practice. And I have hijacked it and bent it beyond what he's willing to stand behind. So don't blame uh, Forrest for this. Uh, but take a small group practice idea, which is uh, you first go into consensus. Let's say you want to figure out how to manage the farm. You know, say we have 200 acre proto B of which about 100 acres is farmland. And uh, so we go into consensus, basically everybody one person and you need essentially all agreement, though we've also developed the game B concept called rough consensus, that if consensus won't happen after, after enough time, then we can go to a vote, but it's gotta be like 75 or 80% super, mm -hmm. super majority as a rough consensus. Uh, and uh, the job of the consensus is to build the executive. So is to uh, define what the executive in charge of agriculture does, what are their responsibilities, how are they funded, 
and who are the people that are appointed into those positions, and then how do they replicate themselves? Maybe they just, if one of them quits, some, they just, the survivors just appoint another one. That would be the classic way it happens in the not-for-profit world. But, mm-hmm. but whatever mechanism, the consensus designs the executive. The executive then goes and just does its thing, typically would have reporting requirements back to the community as, as a whole. And they are not subject to oversight. They're not subject to votes. The uh, decision of what to plan each year never comes before the uh, general meeting, et cetera. But uh, the general meeting, the consensus has one power and one power only, which is what I call to press the red button and dissolve the executive, uh, which then puts the uh, problem back to the consensus organization uh, with the charge to define a new executive. Uh, and, you know, you didn't like the way that one was working. That's the, and truthfully, it might be as small as just changing the personnel. Maybe we're happy with the structure, but it turns out the three people running it are all assholes by, uh, for whatever reason. We didn't know it at the time. So we press the red button. Uh, we say, all right, we like the structure, but we're appointing these three people to be the new uh, leaders of the agriculture executive. And then the agriculture executive goes off and does its thing with regular reporting, but no, no democratic oversight. Uh, that's an example that I think could work. And I think it's real important to say could, because all these ideas, including uh, my pet idea of liquid democracy, are unproven at scale and would be dangerous to be to assume that they would work. And again, this is a very big game B thing. Like we call it epistemic humility or modesty is uh, don't think you're smarter than you actually were, than you actually are. When it comes to dicking with complex adaptive systems, our ability to predict what will happen uh, with any significant intervention is a hell of a lot smaller than we think it is. So take relatively small steps, be empirical, be prepared to back off or modify if you find that what you're doing doesn't work. Yeah, well, so this is an interesting uh, point of contention here is the sort of the difference between the emphasis on design versus iteration. Um, So, you know, sort of the the hot thing, especially if you're more of like a tech-minded Silicon Valley type is, well, we don't need to actually plan anything out. We don't even need to know what our product is going to be. We're going to sort of find product market fit as we go along. And everything is just about uh, increasing the rate of, of iteration. Uh, and uh, again, hearkening back to, to Teal, just because he's been sort of an influence on me uh, intellectually over the last few years, he sort of pushes against this in the opposite direction. He says, well, there's too much emphasis on uh, sort of blind iteration. You need actually more, uh, more careful, thoughtful, thorough planning and uh, directedness, uh, which would be sort of more in the design space. How do you think about um, sort of the trade-offs between iterating and design? Ah, very good question. One of my favorite topics. Let me, if you don't mind, I'm gonna take a break here and get a can of uh, uh, sure. something, something to drink. Yeah, that's a very important question. And, and the meta answer is uh, they're all talking about the wrong thing because uh, there are times when you want one and times when you want the other. I've been involved with 20 early stage companies uh, as either a founder, uh, actually an employee for only one of those, <laughs> that I learned it's a hell of a lot better to be with something besides an employee. Uh, uh, you know, founder, uh, investor, advisor, uh, member of the board of directors. You know, so I've I've seen lots of these things up front. And I know I know of lots of other ones, and uh, we've actually looked at this at the Santa Fe Institute uh, to some degree. And there's actually a mathematical theorem that's important here called the no free lunch theorem. Uh, which basically says there is no one right way to search, right? And uh, a business is a search algorithm on the coevolutionary fitness landscape of other businesses uh, that are out there, essentially, right? 
That's all a business is, a search algorithm, right? And it's important to think about it that way. And the no free lunch theorem says there is no one algorithm that's optimal. And this is clearly uh, the case in business. Uh, I can give you, you know, two different, uh, completely different examples of companies I've been involved with. Uh, one is a, a relatively lightweight app for helping you improve your sovereignty in the, in the game B sense. Uh, it helps you uh, lower the gap between intention and action. And truthfully, uh, while there's some very interesting backend things going on, uh, the most important part is that it's really easy to use and provides the, and it also has social built into it. Uh, and uh, it's really easy to use and that the social actually does what it's supposed to do. This is a perfect example for a perfect uh, case for a fast iteration, learning and constantly changing. And either we'll figure it out or we won't. There's no way to figure this out in advance. Other extreme, another one of my companies uh, that we ended up selling, uh, had a nice successful effort, uh, was uh, software for designing computer chips. Uh, in particular, this last one we did, we did two companies for uh, computer chip uh, design, uh, was to optimize chip design for manufacturability. Because we're now getting down to the level of these traces on the chips for uh, nanometers, now they're going to do. Uh, where quantum mechanics actually become a significant factor uh, in uh, what happens on the chip. And there's two problems. One, does it work at all? Uh, but then, and then if you can solve that problem, uh, which we could not solve, that was not in our charter, which uh, was, all right, now you got one that works, but its yield is only going to be 50 or 60% because it's dealing with all this quantum parasitism. parasitism. Uh, can you do something to move 50 or 60% uh, you know, good chip yield to 80 or 90% good chip yield. Turns out there are some things you can do uh, using some very advanced technologies uh, kind of at the maniac edge. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm not gonna, I guess I could tell now since we sold the company. But anyway, it's, uh, not matter. It's, it's, it's magic shit that took us six or seven years to get right. Uh, you know, this was research, planning, uh, listening to customers, yes, uh, but mostly just working really hard to figure out how to solve this world-class fucking problem. And uh, the other the other antithesis of, you know, sort of a light social uh, or ease of use and getting the social right is important. Uh, and so there's no one answer to it. You know, Peter Thiel's absolutely right. If you want to build Palantir, you can't do it in uh, one-week agile sprints. Uh, on the other hand, someone that does a two-year, a one-year plan uh, using, you know, 1970-style waterfall uh, design for a uh, lightweight social app is a fucking idiot, right? Uh, so I, I say nobody is correct who, who says there's one way to think about it. All depends on the problem domain. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially uh, to pick it up a level, uh, where are you in the co-evolutionary fitness landscape what is the nature of the problem that's actually of economic value? And is it a problem that is uh, uh, for which rapid rapid but shallow iteration is the right thing to do? Or is it something that five years of ball busting work? Oh, another company that um, I haven't actually taken a formal position with, but might, uh, quantum computing. Mm -hmm. uh, again, this is deep, deep, deep thing. It'll be four years before they even have a prototype, right? Uh, yeah. and so this is not about, <laughs> you know, 
agile and all this is deep, 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 deep thinking. So uh, there ain't no right answer. Uh, you know, don't believe anybody who says there is. Uh, look at the co-evolutionary fitness landscape where you're at. What's the mo important, most important driver of the business you're trying to do? And what kind of uh, goal structure and methods will help you solve that one or two hard problems that will make or break this company in that co-evolutionary fitness landscape? Mm, yeah, so really about uh, being extremely keyed into, I mean, fitness as such uh, and uh, uh making it making it uh making it as closely aligned with uh with 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 the proper description of the problem actually uh becomes actually way more important yeah uh, and understanding because any business that's likely to succeed is trying to solve no more than two problems right real problems i mean there's a lot of recombination you know getting things right but in fact i prefer one hard problem solve one hard problem and are reasonably intelligent on your uh, recombination and uh, assuming the problem is one of actual economic value, you will be successful if you have a good team. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, I wanted to ask, uh, while we're still on the topic of, uh, of entrepreneurship, if there are some problems that uh, can't be solved in this sort of Dunbar level, uh, you know, group size, uh, maybe they take larger uh, human scales uh, of mobilization uh, in order to, to get fixed. I'm thinking, you know, uh, uh, what you're talking about there with uh, with the microchip technology uh, probably involves, you know, orders of magnitudes of com uh, of complicated, uh, you know, human machinery that that sort of has to come together to make something like that happen. Uh, do you think that as something that is uh, compatible with these game B setups? Are you imagining sort of networks of Absolutely. game B proto communities that sort of Wonderful. horizontally right. communicate? Yeah, horizontally, vertically, mesh networked. Uh, it's, let's take a chip manufacturing plant, because that's a really interesting example. There's no way to make, that we know of today, to make, uh, you know, two nanometer chips other than in a $10 billion plant, right? And mm -hmm. one could imagine a $10 billion plant owned by Game B uh, with hundreds of proto-Bs around it, right? And a bunch of maybe a quarter of the people on each proto-B works at the plant, right? Nothing wrong with that. Perfectly reasonable. Uh, now, in terms of other kinds of problems, let's say we wanted to build a competitor, a better Facebook, right? Nothing like Facebook. Blah, right? uh, well, it can start small. Uh, it's actually not that hard a technical problem. Uh, as it grows, it's going to need thousands and tens of thousands of people working at it. And uh, the organization, the Game B Venture, uh, can have uh, uh, filaments that reach out all over the place into all the other Proto Bs. And oh, by the way, into Game A, nothing that says that a Game B venture has to only employ Game B uh, people, right? And so, uh, you know, one should not think that a Game B venture overlays one-to-one -one on a Proto B, because there's many, many interesting problems uh, for which, and, cause, and we say 150 people, frankly, uh, the number that might be available to work on a venture is 30, 40, or 50 at the most, right? The rest is going to be involved in, you know, just making a living, doing a local job, running the, you know, the auto repair business or working on the farm or doing the laundry, et cetera. So uh, we by no means assume that the limit of a Game B venture is, uh, you know, any given Proto-B. It's basically all of Game B plus whatever we want to bring in from Game A. Mm -hmm. So we're prepared to take on any problem of any size, but but not right now. So I uh, want to talk to you a little bit then about, uh, about some uh, – some hangers on or hangovers uh, that might come along uh, from game A, including just sort of the massive systems in game A that may want to disrupt certain aspects of game B. Uh, and that is predators. 
you know, uh, you're not a real metaphysics guy, but malevolence uh, makes itself known in human nature. And it, given our uh, our evolutionary variation, there are humans that are more optimized to, let's say, parasitize other humans than others. Absolutely. Well, I could the issues. Sociopathy. So, so what how do, do you do about the sociopaths? Yeah, right? how do you deal with predators? You kill them. <laughs> uh, you know, we have talked about this literally from the first conversation that we had about Game B, uh, which uh, we are not naive. Uh, we have evolutionary biologists as part of this, two uh, pretty top evolutionary biologists as part of the startup team. Uh, for the Emancipation Party and uh, Game B. And so we're well aware that uh, predation is inevitable and we just have to be prepared to deal with it, right? Uh, in terms of economic pr uh, predation, uh, we have to outcompete them, literally, right? Uh, when they start to, uh, you know, raise the stakes of political predation, that becomes trickier. And that's where being in a place like the United States is better than being in some place where the, uh, you know, the strength of the state is stronger. You know, the uh, U.S. state has gotten a lot stronger than it used to be and a lot stronger than it should be. Uh, but it's still there's still an awful lot of room to do your own thing so long as you don't violate the law. As I like to point out to people in the Anglo-Saxon world, and particularly in the United States, Canada and Australia, uh, that which is not forbidden is permitted. In uh, like the EU and in the civil law uh, legal code that was inherited from uh, uh, the Romans and then was updated by Justinian, who was Greek Orthodox uh, in Constantinople. Well, actually, I don't think, I think he was still a Catholic, but Constantinople, Eastern Empire, and then it was redone again by Napoleon. Uh, basically, the rules are uh, only that which is permitted is permitted. So, at least in the Anglo-Saxon sphere, uh, we, if we're careful. Uh, we have a good opportunity to avoid political predation. Comes to physical predation, uh, you know, I'm kind of a hard-nosed old redneck, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm per perfectly prepared to say proto bees will probably have militias, right? Uh, and, okay. uh, and if it comes to it, uh, we're going to have to fight it out. God damn it! Yeah. Well, so uh, that works then on the level uh, on the level of uh, of small communities and individual conflict that might arise. Uh, what do you do about uh, about the nation states, right? So you've got the U.S., but you've got places like China, which is sort of like uh, uh, China has almost uh, become like a hyper version of Game A in some sense, uh, because it's uh, it, it, it's sort of pursuing um, a kind of growth trajectory, a kind of, uh, you know, uh, capital uh, accumulation at all costs. Uh, and it's also extraordinarily centralized. In fact, it's making now that it's uh, under single person leadership, it's making strides to become even more centralized. And it's using all the technological capacity that it has at its disposal to, uh, I mean, essentially try to create a large prison uh, that 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 it thinks that no one will ever be able to get out of. How do you think about the geopolitical implications of this uh, and the propensity for a game A type state uh, to outcompete uh, a state that's more concerned, you, you know, because I, I just imagine like if you take the Anglo-Saxon world, the United States, uh, let's say it's sort of the free countries as uh, the places where game B will be able to flourish, uh, how do you stop a place like 
uh, let's just use China as the bad guy, even though uh, that's and there's different angles you can take on that. Uh, how do you stop a place like that from just sort of coming in and trying to impose its its system or its style by force? Uh, obviously, we'll have to have counterforce, right? Yes. Again, we're, we're not hippies in a mud hut uh, and we're not naive. Uh, mm-hmm. And how that would work out, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, to answer another one of the thing you did not ask is we're, again, not naive. We don't think we're going to build game B in China anytime soon. Right. Mm. In the same way, Gandhi famously said his method of nonviolence would not have worked in Nazi Germany uh, that allowed uh, India to uh, get out from colonial oppression by the Brits. Uh, and so you have to be realistic on where you practice uh, game B. And so we see the West as uh, the first place. Uh, we think that uh, areas that are, uh, say, under-organized in some ways, like Sub-Saharan Africa might be another opportunity. Uh, Latin America could be another opportunity. Latin America is really part of the West. It's just a laggard part of the West. Uh, it has its issues. Uh, but no, China or Russia today, don't think so. Uh, to the question of uh, should the Chinese... Uh, decide they're going to try to roll over the Anglosphere. Well, the Anglosphere's always got to be ready to fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so you're definitely uh, not uh, not timid in any sense about self-defense, uh, even though I can't imagine Game B ever, you know, choosing to go to war. Um, maybe maybe that will become an inevitability uh, in some scenario. Well, I hope hope not. There's nothing more wasteful than war. The worst invention of the human race is war. Uh, on the other hand, uh, at our, our current level of personal development, it's still a possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, on, the, on the third hand, uh, it's quite amazing that the idea that the Germans and the English and the French could get into it again seems exceedingly unlikely. And yet for hundreds of years, that was the main agenda of uh, European geopolitics was some balance of power between Austria and Germany and France and England and Spain and sometimes Italy uh, with constant wars, right? But that's pretty much unthinkable today. Uh, maybe we get to a point with that at a, on a global basis. Um, and maybe, I mean, you know, what, what will China do? I mean, I'm, I'm with you, frankly. I do not like what China is doing. I refer to them as neo-fascists, which is kind of mm. ironic considering they think of themselves as communists. But yeah. in reality, they're a combination of the state plus capitalism plus nationalism and militarism uh, with a with a heavy-duty police state that's getting more heavy-duty every day. Uh, so they fit the model of fascism better than they do communism. On the other hand, historically, the Chinese have not been imperialists, right? They want to uh, defend themselves, but they have not uh, gone very far afield. You know, they've conquered Vietnam a couple of times, and then the Vietnamese have revolted and thrown the hell out. Uh, you know, there's been border skirmishes around Korea and they, uh, Tibet, you can argue. Uh, but China does not have a tradition of uh, long-range conquest. So the Chinese want to be Chinese and be assholes. That's their business in China yeah. uh, for the foreseeable future. But they uh, come, you know, the the the. And let's you know, let's be optimistic and say that uh, Game B uh, gets to the point that it replaces the nation state in the West. You know, 800 million, a billion people. Uh, we will not be naive. We know we will still have to be able to fight if we need to against uh, uh, other nation state level or, uh, or or groups. At least again, that's me. You know, I'm a 
I'm a fairly cantankerous person. I'm a gun nut. You know, I got at least 100 guns. I don't know how many exactly. Uh, actually, I probably a little bit, I sold a few, uh, mm-hmm. couple of few. Uh, probably less than 100. But anyway, uh, you know, I'm a great believer in Second Amendment. I'm a great believer in the fact that, uh, you know, if you're not prepared to defend yourself, someone's going to take your shit, right? And that's going to, that has to be true at every scale, including the civilizational scale. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a little bit of a, a, a cultural uh, mutt myself. I'm a, I'm a half Jewish uh, and uh, but also raised here in, in the Midwest. I, I'm from from Michigan and sort of a rural, uh, more or less uh, type area. And so uh, I have a lot of different, um, I guess, cultural influences with regards to things like gun rights and uh, even social political issues. I wanted to ask you. So I listened to. A uh, conversation that you had on uh, on the podcast Team Human uh, with a professor from uh, um, uh, City University of New York who was uh, really continuing to push you on certain he's trying to sort of steer the direction in in, uh, in very racial directions, uh, you know, concerns about social justice, concerns about uh, minority rights, et cetera. And I think one of the um, objections that some people might have uh, in today's culture to your conceptualization of Game B, which I think can get mischaracterized as kind of utopian, uh, is that there could be, for example, ethnic strife. Um, you know, I, as I told you, I'm half Jewish. So, uh, you know, rising crimes against uh, against Jews, which is uh, which is happening, unfortunately, in the United States right now is something that uh, is on my radar and that I'm concerned about. I don't have any concerns about it happening in my particular community, but I know of cities and areas of the country where it is happening. Um, how do you think about ethnic strife? This is uh, very similar to the question earlier about uh, not only about predation, but also about status. It sort of seems to be built into uh, uh, human beings at some level that uh, when you get to certain levels of uh, heterogeneity, um, you 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 get uh, sort of uh, ethnic strife. Do you think that's more of a, an issue of just assimilation, having a sort of shared cultural understanding? How do you think about uh, those issues? Ah, good, very good question. Uh, but also before I answer that one, let me first. Uh, you know, you said you know, people might mistake Game B for utopian. We want to be very clear. We are anti-utopian. Uh, mm-hmm. Utopians claim they have the magic formula in their little book, and if you just follow our instructions, everything will be great. Right. You know, Marx is a perfect example of that. You know, Hitler, you know, uh, Mao, all these people, these were utopians. Uh, we are very radically empiricists and experimentalists and believe that uh, we can have some principles. But by the way, we have to be able to amend our principles if, uh, if they don't turn out to be correct. And probably some of them are wrong, just like the U.S. Constitution has an amendment process built into it. Uh, Game B must be able to self-modify its own code, to uh, use uh, kind of con- computer science uh, terminology. And uh, so we are anti-utopian. In fact, in the Game B world, utopian is an insult. Mm. Uh, for the record. Uh, yeah, no, for- I, I thought it might, it might be. So I'm glad you clarified. Yeah, that's a very important point because some people say, oh, those goddamn hippie utopians. Well, that's not us. Uh, the uh, into ethnic, racial, religious strife. Uh, I think this is some of the stupidest shit in the world, really. Uh, I mean, if you know anything about human biology, you know that humans aren't very different at the level of uh, their biology. Uh, and that, uh, you know, the fact that we have allowed ourselves to be uh, divided and set upon each other, uh, you know, over the last, uh, you know, there's a question about how long, far, far back this goes. You know, the current 
model of the races of the world. It's probably only 500 years old, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the Romans and the Greeks actually didn't give a shit about race. What they gave a shit about was language, right, or, and ethnicity. Uh, to the Greeks, a barbarian was a person who did not speak Greek. Uh, you know, you could be a, a, a black person from sub-Saharan Africa or someone from China, and there are uh, documented cases of this, who uh, uh, got adopted into Greek families, learned to speak Greek, fully accepted, didn't give two shits about uh, race, right? Uh, Romans were very similar. Uh, you know, they... Uh, you know, they were proud of their Roman ethnicity, but very interesting. What did the Romans do? How did they conquer the world? Uh, is that they extended their Roman citizenship to everybody they conquered. It started mm. out that you had to be in the city of Rome to be a Roman. And then they had a big civil war with the Italians in South Central um, um, Italy that they had conquered, but not had not assimilated. And I forget who it was. One of the great Roman leaders said, ah, here's the answer. Let's offer these rebellious Italian tribes full Roman citizenship, right? And full, the ability to vote for consul the whole deal, right? And uh, and that settled it, right? And uh, and after that, you know, eventually, even people in Gaul and all that were, you know, in France, where France is today, they were Roman citizens. Uh, Paul of of uh, Tarsus, you know, the Saul of Tarsus when he was a Jew, hated Christianity, and then supposedly he got uh, struck by lightning on the road to Damascus and became, uh, you know, the aluminum siding salesman of Christianity, right? Uh, mm -hmm. He was a Roman citizen, uh, and that's why he wasn't crucified, because you could not crucify a Roman citizen. He was executed some other way. I don't know. Chopped his head off, I think, actually, is what it was. Uh, so uh, we thought. I personally, but I'm not going to speak for Game B on this because it's such a, sen a sensitive topic these days, uh, that all this huffing and puffing about ethnicity and religion and race is classic ma Game A malware. Mm. And that we do not intend to replicate it in Game B at all. Uh, and uh, we are a big tent in Game B. But one thing we have explicitly uh, ruled out I'm going to pull it up and I'm going to read it because it's so important. Uh, we have ruled out racists and anti-Semites by name uh, as not uh, welcome in game B. And that applies to all varieties, including this neo-racism called wokeism, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, at least the first, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, this, this is it's kind of a weird thing. I mean, uh, there's a lot of people say they're woke and what that ba basically means is that they believe that we haven't done enough to fully bring some of the marginalized groups uh, fully to the table of American life. I 100% agree with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there's, there's other people, I call them wokies, to distinguish it from wokes, yeah. uh, who believe in this critical race theory nonsense, right, uh, which is essentially racism, right? Uh, it says that we, that we are who our race is, when that's exactly what we have to get away from. Uh, so anyway, the, the, the one thing where we get real specific and close the big tent Game B will not tolerate ideologies that target and limit individuals based on race, creed, color, gender, sexual uh, orientation, or neurodiversity. Individuals belonging to all categories are to be treated fairly and held to the same responsibilities regarding their own development towards increasing sovereignty. Mm. And then the headline is racist and anti-Semites are not welcome in this group. Uh, yeah. And so... Uh, I know people think this is naive, and I've gotten into arguments with people about this. Uh, but I say, frankly, it's a game A problem. Uh, in game B, we're just not going to play that shit. 
you know, we're, we are going to uh, be aware that this is just garbage that is spun up for various reasons and it's not meaningful and that each person should be evaluated on the content of their character. What a concept. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, it's interesting there. You have a conception of rights uh, that's sort of baked into that statement that I think also applies uh, from your other utterances that I've heard to game B more generally, which is uh, actually more classical uh, conception of natural right than uh, than the sort of modern one that we've inherited. Our modern conception of uh, of of natural right has more to do with, uh, with with sort of a Hobbesian view of self-preservation uh, at all costs. When you say that you're willing to kill these predators, uh, and when you also state that something like uh, uh, you, you'll belong to this game B community regardless of your individual characteristics, but that comes along with an attendant set of responsibilities, that itself is also a, um, a classic understanding of natural right uh, in, 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 in classical Greek society, your rights as a citizen had attendant duties attached to them. Uh, and, uh, and also human flourishing uh, was, was the reason for having them. They weren't just rights that you had uh, for the sake of, of, of you being a human uh, or you being in some sort of abstract social contract like we have here in the United States under our constitution. Uh, the rights uh, were justified not on a metaphysical basis, like a lot of people like to claim uh, that they came from uh, Judaism or Christianity, but they were originally uh, about how do you how do you push uh, the community? Now they were more focused on group cohesion, but how do you push the community towards excellence? And so that's virtue amazing. ethics, virtue yes. ethics, right? I uh, I can't. I'm not going to speak for the whole game community, but I will say that uh, some of the oldest gangsters of game B are big, big time into virtue ethics, right? Uh, and not into uh, deontological ethics. That's the, uh, you know, the metaphysical uh, argument that it must be true that X is the ethical thing, right? Uh, or utilitarianism, you know, Hume's uh, uh, idea of uh, sort of just ultimate uh, transactional money grubbing, essentially, or hedonism. Uh, it's all about uh, evolving a group of definitions of what is good character that we believe will cause a society to flourish. And it didn't come down from, uh, that's why we joke actually on the Game B homepage, uh, the Game B site, uh, the rules actually have a picture of Moses's uh, tablets and as the Ten Commandments, right, which are Ten rules of which I just read you one of them. And we do that ironically because we you know, say specifically, this shit was not brought down from Mount Sinai on a, on a stone tablet. This is stuff humans invented, right? And mm. we've done it by trial and error. And we have a fairly good idea about what uh, attributes of character uh, result in good societies. Now, we're not going to be dictatorial about it. I mean, if one game B uh, group wants to, you know, you know, let's say uh, prudence is one of the uh, seven uh, classic virtues. It wants to de-emphasize prudence, for instance. They want to be more like hippies in mud huts. Well, I'll give it a try. See if it works. My bet is it won't. Right? Uh, mm. You know, uh, you want to you want to dispense with honesty and good faith. Well, I'm going to uh, tell you that ain't going to work. Right? Uh, you know, uh, you want to dispense with uh, organizing a society with one of its principal priorities around. Uh, the well-being of uh, families and children. Well, I'm going to tell you that's not going to work long haul, right? But you want to try it? Go right ahead. 
so I, I think you hit on this, which is that uh, there's a very strong virtue ethics uh, thread in game B. Mm. Uh, okay, uh, last question here uh, before I, uh, I let you go, because uh, we are nearing the end of our time together. Uh, you laid out in that Medium article that you referenced uh, various stages uh, for how you think game B might go. Uh, and now I want to be clear, uh, you're not at all um, prescriptivist about this and saying that this is the way that it has to go or this is the way that every game B um, scenario or community will evolve. Uh, but they roughly involve something like proto game B, which I would say is uh, more or less what we're doing now. Pre game B is where we yes. are today. Yeah, mm. Pre-game B is first, and that is getting ourselves ready to get to the next step, which is proto-B. And proto-B are these first settlements we're talking about, okay. uh, uh, and and also closely related game B ventures. I sort of just hand-waved as I went by in that essay. If I was going to rewrite that essay, I would uh, put uh, game B ventures equal to proto-Bs at, uh, at the coming stage, which we're about to enter. Uh, but most people will still be in pre-B for quite a long while, and, mm. and, and which means that they will be not strongly affiliated with a live entity of lots of game B people doing actual things. Uh, and we, in that article, I put a, a, quite a list of things that people should be working on, right? They should be working on their sovereignty, which we define uh, quite specifically as basically learning to act like an adult person, not a sniveling little shit, right? Uh, you know, learn some real skills, learn how to fix a car, learn how to butcher meat, you know, learn how to cook, learn how to bake, learn how to brew, you know, learn how to, uh, you know, make a computer out of electromechanical relays, maybe. Who knows, right? Learn some actual practical shit. Uh, Sounds like you fun. Know, yeah, it does, right? Uh, you know, get your financial house in order. We, I specifically call that in that, in that essay. You know, pay your debts down. Uh, start reducing your lifestyle spend. Get away from your goddamn Mercedes, right? Get all that shit out of your life. Uh, you know, get healthy to some degree. I'm not the greatest uh, role model for that one. Oh, well, right. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a, a long list of things in the pre-bee world. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and of course, uh, start to interact with other people around some of these other domains. Like in, in the online world today, we have, you know, groups for game B parenting. We have uh, groups for game B governance. We have groups for uh, increasing your sovereignty, uh, et cetera. Uh, you know, join up with some of those groups and work with others to help improve yourself and help you can help other people improve themselves in this in this pre B world. And, um, you know, for a long time, the probably at least 90 percent of game B players will be in pre B. Mm. But then as we start getting proto B's and game B ventures, then there'll be hot spots of game B ism, uh, which people who are gotten themselves ready can join up to right yeah and and then those things will intentionally parasitize game a uh to be able to mobilize new resources continue to grow more game b ventures uh and more proto b's and gradually seduce away the best and the brightest from game a over 80 year period or thereabouts uh, and at some point uh, we may reach a sufficient concentration in some area currently dominated by a nation state that we might actually see a phase change to a game b sovereign entity on the ground. I doubt it looks like a current nation state that will have some attributes of it, uh, particularly in the, around areas of defense. Uh, much, it's more likely to be much more pluralistic. One of the things about game B is we, we call it coherent pluralism. A kernel, and then okay, outside the kernel, uh, you know, people can pretty much do what you want. A Hasidic Jewish proto-B, go right ahead, right? Uh, perfectly reasonable if you want to do that. Uh, 
and uh, uh, and so that's that's essentially how how we see it. And then uh, eventually, you know, you know, several nation state like territories, big enough area, uh, maybe there becomes a super organism uh, that might use something like liquid democracy. I think mm. liquid democracy. Um, I've got a good introductory. Uh, uh, article called Introduction to Liquid Democracy on, on Medium uh, is, is probably good for uh, groups of a few hundred thousand and up. I, I don't think necessarily small communities is its forte. And then something like that that allows a, a non-rigid, non-hierarchical way of self-governance at scale uh, might be the answer for how Game B comes to replace the nation state. But no guarantees on that. As I warned in that article, this shit hasn't been tried at scale. So uh, uh, be careful. Yeah, well, so we're all we're all in the early stages of this and uh, you've got time. But I think the key takeaway here is that every individual has it on themselves to get prepared. If this is something that they're interested in moving into. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, you sort of move through the stages there that I was going to ask you about, which is find the others online and find the others IRL. Uh, I think I'm sort of in the stage of finding the others online. That's part of why I actually started this podcast in the first place. Um, and uh, hopefully I'll be finding the others IRL uh, in the near to medium future once I get uh, more of my uh, my life situations in order. Yeah. And, um, that, and frankly, uh, the COVID has pushed the IRL part out a little bit. Accelerating uh, it. Yeah. And, and I think the rebound out of COVID, we're going to see a lot. Uh, Tremendous interest in doing Game B in, you know, towns everywhere, you know, uh, monthly initially, then maybe weekly meetups for, you know, potluck dinners. And let's talk about sovereignty this week. Let's talk about coherence next week. You know, let's talk about, uh, uh, you know, uh, virtue ethics the week after that. And uh, I think that's going to be an important part because, uh, again, as we've talked about in the very beginning, uh, this idea that the online is great because it's cheap, it's widespread. When there's only a few of us, it's a good way for us to connect. But the weeks are uh, the links are fairly weak. Mm -hmm. uh, when you augment that, and I do believe augment, both are valuable with in real life, face-to-face -face community building. I think you're going to see some magic occur that no one's ever seen before, which is uh, the combination of on-the-ground strong links and powerful and well-thought-through virtual links. And the combination of the two is going to be much more powerful than either by itself. And I, I can't wait to see what's going to come. Uh, well, thank you, Jim. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I appreciate you giving us your time today to talk about Game B. I think uh, the links that uh, we all mentioned uh, are, are where, where, well, where, where can people find you, Jim? Tell, tell the people. Uh, you can find me at jimrutshow.com if you want to find my podcast. You can find, uh, find the others at the Game B home website, game-b.org. Uh, if you want to just browse through a pile of unorganized stuff, uh, which has a tremendous amount of the history of Game B in it, uh, GameB.Wiki uh, is a good place to look. Uh, there's also a Facebook group that we're uh, de-emphasizing that, but it's, if you just want to connect up, uh, uh, just search Game B, G-A-M-E-B, uh, on Facebook, and there's a Facebook group, got a few thousand members on it, fairly active. Uh, and uh, use the hashtag GameB on Twitter, and maybe you'll find some people. Uh, so those those are some of the places uh, to find the others, and that's in some sense the first uh, part of the journey. Well, thank oh, and, you so and, much. And also, don't forget uh, a journey to Game B on uh, Medium, probably the single 
uh, most coherent uh, source, not as coherent as I'd like it to be, and I'm working on something to replace it, but a good place to start to make sense out of all this stuff. I know it's a, a, a rather large jump from game A thinking, and people you know, uh, find it mentally stressful to, to kind of picture all this crazy shit. Uh, but it's not as crazy as it sounds. If you dig into it, I think you'll, you'll see that it, uh, that it makes some sense. Well, thank you so much, Jim. And uh, it was, as I said, an absolute pleasure. And I hope that uh, we'll be able to maybe one day meet in person sooner rather than later. Yeah, it sounds great. And thanks, Alex. These were great questions. You obviously did your homework. Uh, I'm uh, always impressed by uh, podcasters that uh, have done their work so they can ask good questions. And you certainly did a great job there. Awesome.